Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. This week, we're going to a couple different places and tying together some pretty disparate ideas while we do it, like neuroscience and architecture. Psychologists could better predict the behavior of children by looking at what locations they were in than by looking at their individual psychology. Very interesting and super cool and correct and mountains and lowlands. One thing that I found after traveling these 72,000 miles was that all these places were like islands in the sky. They were cut off not only geographically but also psychologically. And there was a sense of deep resentment against central authority. They either felt very, very ignored or they felt exploited. But we're going to start in New York City on the Chelsea High Line. One day earlier this spring, I walked along it, one floor above street level, with architecture critic Sarah Williams Goldhagen. She just wrote a book called Welcome to Your World. It's about how people experience the built environment, not just as individuals, but as groups of people living together in communities or cities or towns, and then in society at large. She weaves together research in cognitive psychology and neuroscience to explain how architecture, also known as the buildings all around us every single day, how architecture shapes our feelings, our memories, and our well-being. And a particular spot that holds a lot of memories for me, and I would imagine a lot of other people, including the millions of tourists who have visited it over the years, uh, is the Chelsea High Line. So here we are with Sarah Williams Goldhagen nestled in among the birch trees and the railroad trestles. I'm very glad you asked me to do this interview here because I thought, that's perfect. I can talk about what we think, how we feel, and also how we interact with others. The High Line is really just sort of a perfect place to look at the interaction of the social and individual experience. I lived here in the 1980s, and if you were at all intrepid, uh, which I was in the 1980s. <laughs> um, this was just an abandoned railroad trestle, and it was a cool thing that people did to sort of figure out how to get your way up here. And it was basically 
crabgrass and goldenrod and saplings and it was just this kind of wild incredible place and when they decided to make this into a public park uh, the people who who got the commission for the design wanted to keep some of that wildness that being said it's also a public park it's very heavily trafficked the datum that they had to work with was railroad tracks weeds a <laughs> uh, cast iron balustrade, which survived in some parts of it and not in others, and views over the Hudson in and out. It goes through the bellies of some buildings and so on and so forth. We're starting at 14th Street, right down at the beginning of the High Line, where nature predominates. Um, there's a lot of plants and trees that screen your views of other people things are in bloom and so there's just lots and lots of green. As we walk I'll explain the approach that the designers took to the High Line which is basically a really fascinating mix of curated naturalism and theatricality. Among the really smart things the designers did was they took the railroad trestles and tracks as the design datum. And so basically they made these linear concrete pavers that keep you moving and follow the line of the high line, but also break out into finger-like projections. One of the things we know about how people think now, which we really didn't know even 15 years ago, is that people think a lot through their bodies in metaphors. So these things really almost look like fingers that spread out into the dirt, even though there are signs everywhere that say, stay on the path. <laughs> <laughs> Which will do, since we mostly like to follow the rules here on Smarty Pants, and it's actually really easy to stay on the path because it is, after all, built on a railroad track. Um, what were the challenges with building a, a park on such a linear course like this? One of the design problems in the High Line was it's basically just a big long line, right? And um, what people tend to do in big long lines that have paths in them is just walk and that's it. The designers really needed to figure out where they could open things up at moments and so we're standing in a part of the park where the trestle actually expanded because trains had to turn around and so on here. And so what that allowed the designers to do was to split the levels. So one level goes a little lower, maybe five feet lower than the other level. And what that allows you to do is that the bodies of other people turn into spectacles themselves that you view as you're walking. So it becomes this very social experience, almost in the way that like a theater lobby will be a social experience with lots of different levels so that people can look at other people and then you can look at them looking at you, which is a really great way to keep any space animated. I mean, one thing about the built environment is it's static, right? It's inert. Uh, and so how do you activate that? One of the things that the designers did was take one of the railroad trestles and construct these chez longes and some of these benches are actually on wheels so you can move them back and forth into different configurations based on who you do or don't want to talk to. 
I did not know about that. I, I actually only realized it this morning. <laughs> you learn something new every time. Exactly, exactly. And I have to say that some of them are a little harder to move than other. I'm not sure it was an entirely successful <laughs> design move, but a very smart one. You can interact with it. You can move with it. You can put your fingers in the dirt. You can do all these different stuff with it, which is, uh, I mean, it's designed for us in the bodies that we are, with the minds that we have, to become a place that we want to come back to over and over again. It's, it's always changing, and we can change it. And here we're passing through some of the parts of the High Line with a lot of views of the street and uh, not many buildings around us. So one of the things that's cool about the High Line is that you're elevated one level up from the street and you're walking between buildings. And since the High Line was finished, there's been a lot of high-end residential development uh, that's come up around the High Line, which means that if you walk through it, you're not only looking at the people on the High Line, but you're also looking at people in their apartments uh, or in gallery spaces or whatever. And they're looking at you and you're looking at them and uh, you sort of create this interesting breaking down of boundaries between public and private space, which is a little uncanny and a little weird, but also a lot cool. The unfortunate part of this is that the city, which is typical of cities, I have to say, did not choose to protect the space around the High Line uh, and allowed all of these developments, which are still under construction, some of them, to butt up, in many cases, right against the High Line itself. So as wonderful as the space as it is now and has been ever since it opened, it's going to get progressively less wonderful because there's going to be more and more luxury real estate development right on it, which steals light away from what makes the High Line so great. One of my favorite parts of the High Line, actually, is the view of the Hudson that you get occasionally, which we can actually see right here. Sarah, what's going on in this spot? So through a very light screen of trees, you basically have two very large warehouse buildings compressing and framing your view out and then just a little sliver of the Hudson River. So they use a lot of opportunities to knit you back into the city at the same time that you're in this planted green space. As a lot of what I'm talking about, these are the kinds of stimuli that we have that come into us from our environments that we don't really register consciously. Most of what we register in our environments is not conscious. It's non-conscious, but also most of what we think is non-conscious. Uh, and so just because, just because a place is inert or not static doesn't mean it's not profoundly affecting what you're thinking and what you're doing. So we're at 34th Street and we've walked like 20 blocks, which is way more exercise than I usually get doing the podcast. But conveniently, there are rows of seats right here and a little wooden bleachers, I guess. Um, thank you, Highline designers, for that. And uh, maybe you can tell us, Sarah, a little bit about why you wrote the book. 
Uh, what pushed you to combine all of these concepts and studies from psychology uh, with architecture? I wrote the book because well, there are, are a number of answers to that question. The most immediately comprehensible answer is that I've been teaching in architecture schools for 15 years and art history departments to some extent. And I would look at these projects and I would say, well, you know, what does a person see when they walk inside here? And what kind of materials are they going to be looking at? And how are you, you know, what kind of experience uh, is someone who's using this building going to have? And quite often, really surprisingly often, the answer I would get is, well, we can't really talk about how people experience spaces because, you know, experience is all subjective. And I'm a big believer in cultural relativism, and I know that people in 16th century China didn't think the same way that people in 21st century New York do um, or America do. But more and more, I became frustrated with that answer. I thought, well, wait a minute. We all walk on two legs unless we're disabled, have bodies that are upright, have eyes that have that can see certain things and process visual information the way that they can. So I began to think, you know, I've been talking for 20 years about all the ways that that experiencing the built environment is different. Now I want to talk about what's the same. What isn't different? Uh, and there are certainly better things that we can say about that than it's all subjective. Uh, so that's one answer. Um, the other thing is that I began reading studies about how non-logical most of what we think is and how influenced by our environment. I mean, one of the early studies that I read, which I, just, I still love, was called the clipboard experiment, where uh, researchers gave subjects clipboards and said okay you're going to go interview a candidate for a job what the subjects didn't know is that some of the clipboards were really heavy and some of the clipboards were really light after they had interviewed the candidates they asked the interviewers to score the candidates on all sorts of different dimensions, how qualified they were for the job, and this and that and so on. And one of the dimensions was gravitas, or intellectual weight. Lo and behold, the people holding the heavier clipboards scored the subjects as having more intellectual heft than the people holding the light clipboards. And I thought, you know, that's it. If, if such a small thing in our environment can so profoundly influence our assessment of other people, then there's got to be a zillion ways that people aren't really thinking about that are influencing us. Psychologists call these primed. We're basically being primed by the built environment all the time. And that's why we need to manage it better and to have more control over what people are being primed with in the environments they inhabit every day. I mean, I live in East Harlem. East Harlem has one of the highest percentages of social housing in the United States. And I walk out and I look at these housing projects. NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority, is chronically underfunded. 
and these things were never great in terms of design and they're horribly maintained so they have scaffolding on them all the time and garbage in front of them and the windows are tiny and the apartments are tiny and and I, I look at these buildings and I say, these buildings are simply shouting to their inhabitants that they don't matter, their lives don't matter. Uh, and with better design, they would be in a better place in their world. So the built environment has profound effects on people. And for the last 20 years, people have been talking a lot about the mind-body connection. And basically what I'm saying is, well, there's a third component in that, which is the environment. It's really the mind-body environment connection that we need to be thinking about and really analyzing. Thanks so much for walking with us. Sure. It was really a pleasure. Woke up, it was a Chelsea morning, and the first thing that I heard was a song outside my window, and the traffic wrote the words. It came a-reeling up like Christmas bells, and wrapping up like pipes and drums. Oh, won't you stay, we'll put on the day, and we'll wear it till the night comes. Far, far away from New York City, there is a series of mountain ranges where conflict still rages between the fiercely independent mountain people and the lowlanders seeking to control them. This mountain range is in Mexico, and it's in Russia, and Pakistan, and Albania. It could be pretty much any mountain range in the entire world, because from the Alps to the Himalayas and the Sierra Madres, north and south, Pretty much every mountain range is home to some kind of lingering conflict. Why? What makes the mountains so hospitable to violence? Is it just that they're natural borders between people at odds with one another? Or is there something deeper at play here? These are the kinds of questions that Judith Matloff asks in her new book, No Friends But the Mountains. The title comes from a Kurdish saying, but It's apropos to just about any group that calls the mountains home. Judith Matloff is a veteran journalist who's reported on wars from the Caucasus to Kashmir. She teaches conflict reporting at Columbia University in New York, where she's joining the show. Thanks for talking to us, Judith. Thank you for having me. So how did the idea for this book occur to you? It's a really prosaic story. My 11-year-old son and my husband were and still are obsessive risk players. That's a board game for world domination. So we were playing one day, and I think we hit the five-hour mark, and the kid was getting kind of tired, and his father had just taken Afghanistan, and it didn't look too good for him. So my son, in order to distract everybody, said, Mom, Mom, which conflict areas have you worked in? Get a globe and show me. So I brought a globe over, and I started reciting where I'd worked, uh, places including Chechnya and Colombia and Mexico. And my kid was running his hand over them as I was pointing them out. And he said, Mom, like, a lot of these are in mountains. Why is that? And uh, that's kind of the genesis of the book. So how did you diagnose, say, the the various conflicts that are at play here? We don't usually think of, like, Albania and Mexico in the same breath. Right. So how did you make that connection? How did the, the little tendrils of all these conflicts occur to you? Well, they each, in order to be in the book, had to have an enduring conflict that was very difficult to resolve. So that was my bottom line. 
I wanted geographical diversity, and I also wanted causal diversity. I wanted examples that wouldn't repeat each other, be it resources or ethnic nationalism. And from there, it was really hard to choose because there's a lot of places in the world. So some of them were places that I went back to that I already knew, Colombia, Mexico, and Chechnya, Dagestan. And others, um, I, I tried to choose the most extreme cases I could find. Albania, to me, was just such an extreme example because it's an hour's flight from Rome, and yet you have these archaic honor feuds that have been going on for at least 500 years, if not since the Bronze Ages. And they're really quite pernicious there. Something like 10,000 men have been killed over the past 20 years in blood feuds. And actually, if you look at blood feuds around the world, the last outposts tend to be in very remote areas. So, you know, these biblical forms of of justice still continue in very, very remote cutoff areas. But there had to be a continuing thread or else there really wouldn't be a narrative. And the continuing thread was um, the conclusion I came to, which I really only came to midway of the research, i.e. like four years of traveling on like five different ranges. My conclusion was that the isolation itself was not just a geographic isolation, but also an existential one. So how did were there any regions that you wish you could have included in the book? I was kind of surprised that you didn't go to Burma. Were there other regions that you wanted to include? You know, you're a mind reader. <laughs> I did want to go to Burma. The one that I regret most not going to was the Kurdish area in Turkey. And actually, I had plans to go there. And then um, before the last elections, the crackdown began against the Kurds uh, in particular against the Kurds and against the opposition. And the two people that were going to work as my fixers and my translators were jailed. Um, Another woman who was going to help me was expelled from the country. It's funny how sometimes editorial decisions are made for very pragmatic reasons. Um, The publisher was afraid that if I went to the Kurdish area, I might get detained and stuck there for a whole month, and we couldn't afford to take time off of the book. What other kinds of uh, limitations were there on your travel? I mean, obviously, the elevation is a huge issue. How hard was it to do this research? Well, each chapter could take as much as six months of planning. I was aiming to go to really, really remote areas. Most of the places in the book are well off the tourist track. For instance, even where I went to in Nepal is not a trekking area. And I met people there that had never seen a foreigner. As a matter of fact, I ran into these two old ladies on a mountaintop, and they were debating whether I was male or female. And then one of them said, well, maybe she just fell from the sky. you know. And, then, and, and the funniest thing was, after contemplating whether I was human or you know what gender I was, then they just walked off. But yeah, no, it took an immense amount of planning. And the thing is, a lot of these places, um, only some of them did I speak the language fluently. So I needed to arrange really good fixers, somebody who basically um, will make the contacts, set up your interviews for you. Then there was the physical element. I I suffer from vertigo and I, I suffer from altitude sickness. So I made sure, you know, over these past few years, I was very, very physically fit. Like I would stop drinking for a month before I'd go on a trip. Oh, there's one other thing I've got to mention, which is weather. When it's the rainy season or it's in winter in a lot of these places, 
You just can't get up there. So, for instance, my trip to Mexico, there was a freak meeting of two tropical storms. This never happens. We got out just in time. Literally, we were driving in like three feet of water, and at one point the car had to be abandoned. This actually isn't in the book. And um, then that area, La Montaña, was cut off for something like two months. Even the government couldn't get there to bring aid. Then another... Uh, restriction was being detained. Um, my trip to Dagestan, Chechnya, was cut short because I was detained by the anti-terrorism squad. And it was really quite frightening, and I was on their radar, and it really would have inhibited any more reporting in that area. So that was a huge thing that just cut short that chapter. Not to mention the close encounter with the FARC in Colombia. Not exactly <laughs> school trip material. <laughs> You know, one of the biggest challenges is I'm a mother and I have a day job, which is teaching at Columbia. So a lot of these trips were organized around school holiday time. I couldn't really take a full two months and go off somewhere because I had a young child and I had a job. So in in a lot of ways, that was more restrictive than even the physical considerations. So I think it's about time we got into the the real differences the mountain people have with the lowland. I mean, it's a complicated relationship, obviously, because you have not only indigenous mountainous cultures and their own ways of life, but also a state and centralized government that tend to be located in the lowlands. So it seems like either the state is too involved or it totally abandons its people. How do the mountain folks relate to the lowland? Is there a generalized attitude that you can make across all of these countries? Well, you know, this is such a good question. Initially, when I started out, I wanted to steer clear of um, geographic determinism, and I wanted to steer clear of making broad statements that would relate to mountain people, particularly because I'm a lowlander. So I didn't want to seem chauvinistic or, or condescending or patronizing and say, oh, those mountain people. But then what happened is I met a group called the World Mountain People Association. It's a network of mountain people from 70 different countries. They've been around since the early 2000s. And they are about as geographic determinist as you can get. They will talk about commonalities in terms of psychology, in terms of personality traits, in terms of attitudes. And the one, one of the major themes that I picked up from their members from different regions was that there is an intense resentment of lowland governments, either because they only get involved when they want something, for instance, to strip mine or to get gold or to dam up water. There is this sense of being abandoned, of being an island in the sky until somebody wants something from you. And then they start imposing their will. And that was nearly universal. Are mountain people and organizations like the World Mountain People Association joining together to combat these issues? The group is really interesting. They're not really a an action-oriented group. They're more of almost like a support group. If you hear them when they get together, they'll share concerns, but they don't really necessarily take action. I think it's really, really hard to have a geopolitical interest group that's based on a geographical feature that spans five different continents. I, you know, it's not like they have a voice as the mountain people in the United Nations, for instance. But certainly what, what really, really struck me was how they derive such great comfort from being with each other and 
sharing information about, okay, this is a problem that we had. People were stealing our land, and this is how we dealt with it. And, oh, that's really interesting. Now, how do you deal with this problem? Or just, I hear you, brother. I hear what you're saying. It's kind of funny, like an AA meeting that meets on a different mountain every year. (laughs) Yeah, and they rotate. Exactly. This year, it's going to be in Morocco. So I was wondering a little bit about one of the most volatile conflicts we have in the Kashmir territory. What kinds of things are these individuals doing to combat this extreme threat to their existence? Kashmir is is like every problem that you could see in a mountain problem is in Kashmir. You have a minority group that's seeking self-determination, but at the same time, they're squeezed between two regional superpowers, India and Pakistan, that both want control. And then you've got 14 different armed groups, um, al-Qaeda or Taliban-related, extremist groups, which have gotten involved with their own agendas. And it's it's really hard to see a, a solution to that because there's so many actors and because two of them are very, very powerful international regional powers. Um, but, you know, the Kashmiris, there's people who are involved with the extremists. There are people who might even support India. There are people who don't. There are other people that want to join Pakistan. There are other people that just want to stay. But I guess the continuum there is the sense that Kashmiri identity is under threat and under assault by any one of these other groups. And for that chapter, you visited a psychiatric hospital um, And you spent a lot of time there, and you didn't really focus on a military site or a remote mountain village like you had in a couple other chapters. And it's a really poignant metaphor. How did you fix on that setting? I traveled with a photographer to go there, and I I had Kashmiri colleagues. And what I was looking for there was something that would demonstrate the human cost of being ignored, the human cost of having your culture dominated by the mainstream one. And, you know, it's interesting because Kashmiris refer to the rest of India as being the mainland. They're joined physically, but the way they see it is that they're an island in in a mainland. And I heard the story about this psychiatrist in this hospital who was treating anywhere from 60,000 to 100,000 patients a year, just him alone. And I thought, what could be more dramatic than illustrating the psychic frustrations of people in these situations where they're just not given self-determination and where they feel their culture is under assault. It it was the most soul-destroying thing. I mean, we spent weeks and weeks with this fellow um, just in this really, really poorly equipped, under-resourced hospital. As a matter of fact, the sign that said psychiatric hospital had fallen off its hinges. You know, it was like a metaphor for what went on inside. But then we found a sidetrack, which relates back to your question about local culture, which is that a lot of people were turning to faith healers and traditional healers called peers because it was a way of getting back to who they were in their culture, and it was also a way to try to relieve this this horrible pain. And um, that was a lighter, more optimistic note in the chapter, but it was just, yeah, I mean, it was just absolutely devastating to, to witness this. Mm. And it's a really stark example to counter with that of Switzerland, which you used to close <laughs> the book. You asked the question, which is, are there any political solutions to the challenges faced by mountain people? So did you find an answer to your question? 
I think Switzerland would be the answer if governments would want to embrace it. And that, that's a big if, obviously. It's so funny because, you know, when people ask me, you haven't read the book, where did you travel? And I say, you know, I went to Dagestan, I went to Kashmir, and I went to Nepal, and I went here, and I went there. And Switzerland, there's always like this, what? <laughs> like this double take, like, why did you go to Switzerland? But, you know, we forget that just about 170, 180 years ago, Switzerland had a civil war. And their main export used to be mercenaries. It wasn't cuckoo clocks or chocolate. We, we forget that, that in their recent history, the country was torn apart by different groups with different languages and different religions. And the way they dealt with it was to just not impose one central national identity on everybody and just say, OK, we're going to have four language groups and we're going to devolve power um, in the world's most direct form of democracy to the 62 cantons, the small communities. And they have immense power over their taxation, over uh, really matters that, that relate to them directly. Because basically, Switzerland being dominated geographically by uh, mainly mountains, there are these cut-off communities and valleys and whatnot. And um, I mean, it just struck me that what a wise solution. Just give as much power to these communities that feel cut off and, and allow them to rule themselves. And um, I mean, it's hard to see the Turkish government subscribing to this when it comes to the Kurds, but it probably is the only thing that would resolve that issue. And likewise, um, something I didn't cover that much in the book, but it's something I've written about a lot as a journalist. If you look at the Basque country in Spain, ETA, the formerly militant separatist group, finally said they were going to hand over their weapons after 50 years of fighting. But what got them to that point was that the Spanish government pragmatically realized that they had to give immense autonomy politically, culturally, educationally, socially to that region, allow people to speak their own language, have their own police force, and at the same time uh, infuse massive investments into the area so that it would be socially developed and economically developed. And that basically took the wind out of the separatist violent movement. So I see that as another solution. But, you know, I, I think if people feel cut off, you have to pragmatically look at whether you really can force them to be pulled into the mainstream. And maybe the solution for a lot of these countries is simply to grant as much autonomy as you can. Before we wrap up the episode, let's go back to the High Line for a second. Hopefully you've been inspired to look at the world a little differently. In a couple minutes after the episode, wherever you are, whether it's on a hike in nature or walking your dog down the street or finishing up some gardening, whatever, take a few minutes to consider the world around you. What do you see in your environment? What are the unconscious forces at work? Check in with yourself. Listen. Do a body check and keep these things in mind. That's it for Smarty Pants. Take care and stay sharp. Woke up, it was a Chelsea morning and the first thing that I knew there was milk and toast and honey and a bowl of oranges too and the sun poured in like
like butterscotch and stuck to all my senses. Oh, won't you stay your foot on the ground? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 